That's right, dear listeners, there is a poop storm a-coming. The following episode of Comfortable Place on the Couch contains salty language. Parental discretion is advised. Welcome to Comfortable Place on the Couch Series 2, a regularly scheduled podcast where a couple of Canadians talk about a band full of Australians and a New Zealander bassist to Midnight Oil fans all around this best of both worlds. My name is Darren Folds, and in the coming months, I'll be listening to all those Midnight Oil songs that didn't make it onto their studio albums. We're talking about B-sides, covers, demos, and maybe a few other tracks if the fancy strikes me. Joining me each episode is my good friend and fellow Midnight Oil enthusiast, Robin Harbin. Welcome to the couch, Mr. Harbin. Well, thank you very much. And we have a third virtual, <laughs> another virtual person on the couch today. We are very excited to have another body virtually on the couches with us. Guest, would you mind introducing yourself? My name is Nick Lorney, and um, I'm actually sitting in my little studio in Los Angeles. And um, it's a beautiful day outside, and I couldn't be happier than to speak with you both about one of my favorite bands. Oh, well, we're super excited to have you today, Nick. Thanks for taking some time today just to, to talk uh, with us. Just in case any of our listeners haven't clued into who Nick Lane is really right now and why we would have him on the Midnight Oil podcast, Comfortable Place on the Couch. Nick, you produced 1098, Red Sails in the Sunset, Earth and Sun and Moon, it's all true. <laughs> That's why you're here. So yeah, tell us how you met the band. And I'm guilty as charged. And and yeah, it is. I love Midnight Oil. Love all of the members. I mean, they're like I literally, you know, last uh, Christmas spent time. I I I stayed at Jim Magini's apartment. He's got this beautiful apartment in Manly because uh, he went off to Ireland. So I was house sitting for him. I went up to Byron Bay to hang out with Rob. I mean, they're still my closest friends and obviously we went through a lot of a lot of a lot of time together making those three records and um, there was also the song on um, Dead Dead Heart so I came in they basically recorded most of it and then I um, helped them finish it there it is you've got a there copy yeah I think I've got a copy up up on my shelves as well a great track right on We've got a bunch of questions ready to go, so maybe we should just start going. Let's do it. Yeah. So, Nick, how did you get into music production as a career? Did you go to school or were you self-taught? Um, no, I, I, I didn't go to any kind of audio school or any anything like that at all. I actually grew up, uh, even though I'm English and I was born in London, uh, my parents moved to the south of Spain to a little village called Frigiliana, which is near Granada, uh, when I was eight. So I, my, my education was just uh, in a very, very, very small school in a village that had no electricity or water in the houses until, and, and basically I grew up there uh, until I was 16. Uh, then at, at 16, returned to England in 1977 which was when punk started. <clears throat> and all all the time while I was in Spain, I was just 
obsessed with music. Uh, my my mum in particular listened to a lot of rock music uh, all the time, and uh, it was a very bohemian sort of uh, atmosphere where I grew up. Lots of Americans and a few English uh, people, friends of theirs, uh, would bring records over. And um, we had a pretty good sound system at my house and people would come over a lot and there was a lot of smoking of hashish and eating fantastic uh, Spanish food and drinking wine and all that. And so, you know, it was almost like a party around at my house all the time, a lot of poets and painters. And so, so basically I grew up very free could be described as like a hippie kid with with yeah. bohemian parents and a lot of rock and roll around me uh, uh, all the time. Then I, when I went to uh, England, uh, we, we left Spain because uh, uh, everything changed and, you know, you needed work permits and it all got a bit more official and organised and we weren't really allowed to stay there, at least my mum. So we, we moved to England and punk rock happened. I'd already been experimenting with tape machines. My dad uh, had two reel to reel tape machines and he gave me one. I think it was uh, I think it was a Grundig. Yeah, it was a Grundig. And I experimented with making tape loops using sticky tape. I was just very I don't know where it comes from, but I I'm I'm very good with equipment and technical things without reading manuals. It's just my dad was the same. I have a son who's the same. Uh, so it's just uh, and my and a daughter. She's great with stuff too. It's uh, So the first thing I ever did as far as manipulating music was I made a tape loop of the intro of the Rolling Stones song. God, it goes... Uh, what song's that? My brain... Pleased to meet you. Hope you guess my name. That song. So I made a tape loop of, of that percussion and drums thing, then recorded that on a cassette machine, which had just been invented. So I made this loop, played that back, back into the, the reel-to-reel, and then got a, a record of the vocals from a paperback writer. And, oh, wow. you know, because the vocals are on one side, on the left, and the music's on the right. So... I managed to using weights on the on the record player. I managed to slow it down so it was the same tempo, and I just sort of got it in. <laughs> so I made this mashup of the Rolling Stones and the Beatles, and I did that when I was ten. So you know, I I, I was already that was what I wanted to do. So basically, when I got to England around nineteen seventy seven, I didn't know quite how records were made but I managed to get a, a, a foot in a recording studio and um, I think I was 18 at the time this song came in to be duplicated this is back in the days uh, it's way before digital so every yeah. time a, a record got released there was the master tape and then it had to be copied uh, for different countries um, well, it had to be mastered first, um, and and this facility where I worked was a mastering room and duplicating and editing facility. It wasn't a proper recording studio, so I did this song called Pop Music by yeah. uh, the artist uh, M, which uh, is is this guy called Robin Scott, 
So mm-hmm. it came in. So it hadn't been released. This song comes in. I was already listening to punk music. And this is was like a pop song with a kind of slightly punk attitude, but it had all these cool keyboards. So it sounded to me a little bit um, like craft work or, you know, it was a very new sound and I loved the song and there was an instrumental. So for my own pleasure, I edited between the instrumental and the, the main version of, of it and made up my own version, which was about five and a half minutes long. And I also put backwards bits in and I delayed things. I was just having fun. The mastering engineer at, at that facility, which was called Tape One, um, knocked on my door at 2 a.m. I was still there fiddling around. He said, what are you doing here? And I said, oh, it's <laughs> this, this great song that came in and I've just been messing around with it. And he said, oh, let's have a listen. He heard it and thought it was great. The next day, much to my horror, he knocks on the door with Robin Scott, who's the singer and artist, who was completely an unknown person because this song hadn't been released. And basically, uh, the, the mastering engineer's name was Dennis Blackham. He said, oh, this is Robin, blah, blah, blah. Can you play him what you played me last night? So very shyly and slightly worried, I played it to him and he loved it. And he said, I might be able to use this because in America right now, uh, my friend uh, Malcolm McLaren has been doing these things and there's this new format called a 12-inch single whereby people are doing longer versions of songs and for the clubs and I need a version like that and yours is longer. Let me see what I can do. So anyway, that came out. That that was He took my version the song pop music came out and literally, I think, went to number one in everywhere in the world. I mean, it was a phenomenally big <laughs> hit. So about three weeks after it got to number one in England and stayed at number one for three, they released my version. And that kept it at number one for longer. So if you can find that that song, you'll see there's two versions. There's the three and a half minute pop version and then there's an extended one so that happened and a year later uh, a studio called the townhouse opened which is uh, a, a great recording studio that belongs to um, Richard Branson and Virgin and I went for the interview there to get a job as a t-boy tape op or assistant engineer and basically I got the job there because of that pop music thing because the the yeah. chief engineer there was like well what experience have you got and I said well I don't have any experience recording in a recording studio that's why I want to come in here but I'd been editing and doing all this stuff and I did this and he was like wow okay so I got a job yeah. as a t-boy we'll a job yep yeah. <laughs> uh and um then the next lucky break I got because it's all about these lucky breaks and yeah. things happening, you know. I think that's what life's all about. You know, I was a, just a tea boy, really, making tea for people. And I got put on a public image session, you know, with Johnny Rotten and uh, Keith Levine yeah. and uh, Martin Atkins, because none of the other assistants, assistant engineers there, that wanted to do it because they'd had bad experiences with John being obnoxious and there were rumours of him <laughs> literally pissing on the desk and 
all this stuff and throwing things and I have no idea if they're true I I have not experienced John John John's always been nice to me but um basically came in with an engineer uh to mix an outtake song from Metal Box which was you know the second public image record uh and this engineer just didn't know how to operate the desk I mean, I barely knew how to operate it, but I knew more than him. And what happened is every time this engineer, and he was Jamaican, a Jamaican Londoner, he would go like, uh, you know, I, you know, this button doesn't work, man. I, you know, I don't know what's here. So I'd go up and I'd push the button, or in, in this case, it was an SSL desk, which was a prototype at the time. So, you know, to give him uh, a little bit of... Uh, understanding of how he was it, it was a new type of desk and he didn't he just didn't grasp it. and this went on for hours and he just couldn't work out how the buttons worked and how not and I, so I kept um, going over to the desk from my high chair at the back of the studio where I was operating the tape machine um, and it and um, after a while John who who hadn't really said anything to me all day he goes here what's your name and I said it's Nick and he said well Nick get your fucking chair and put it up near the desk because you're going backwards and forwards like a fucking yo-yo and you're making me dizzy so I took my high chair and sat next to the engineer and every time the engineer reached over to do something and it and it didn't work for him I would go no you 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 pull the button up and then you turn it so this went on for a little bit and then the engineer got up to 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 leave the room to go and have a piss and John got up for the first time that day bear in mind he's you know in his tartan suit with his orange hair and all that this is yeah. we're talking 1980 John got up and he locked the door locked him out and looked at me and he says all right let's make some fucking music you know what you're doing <laughs> and I was like, looked at him, I'm like, what are you talking about? And he said, well, go on, sit in his chair. You know what you're doing, get on with it. And I just started playing around with things and I had ideas, you know, and I loved public image. So I just kept trying things. And then at one point I stopped and looked at, at John and said, and he goes, what's, what's the matter? And I said, well, I'm, I don't want to mess up what he's done. You know, he's the engineer. And he goes, he ain't fucking done nothing. <laughs> He says, he says, you've already done more than he's done all day. And and just gave me this encouragement. You know, the engineer eventually came back and knocked on the door. And John basically told him to fuck off and go home. He actually, his words were, uh, he says, yeah, we're busy in here making music, which is more than you know how to do. You know, and, uh, <laughs> and basically that right there is when my career really took off because <laughs> I, I finished that song mixing that song and then and I got on really well with John I, I, I you know so this is just one of those you know chemical things or whatever and he's still a friend of mine to this day he lives here in uh, LA and I see him now and then and, and we've just we, we just get on well um, but yeah basically I he he brought me in to do the follow-up album which was the flowers of romance by public image which came out in 1981 and that 
when it came out, it, it it was actually a pretty big hit, and the song "Flowers of Romance" actually went top ten on top of the pops. And in the press, uh, like the NME Sounds and Melody Maker at the time, John mentioned me, and he mentioned me as a producer. So, next thing I know is Killing Joke uh, are, are trying to find me. Uh, the slits. Um, you know, the birthday party with Nick Cave, mm-hmm. um, Gang of Four. And I did all, worked with all those artists in that year, in the ni- in 1981, I did all that stuff. Which leads us to Midnight Oil. Yeah. Mm. I've been talking a lot. Maybe you have a question. So how did you get the job of producing 1098? Like, do you remember when you first met the Oils or perhaps you met one of the members before you met the band and and what was it like that first day that you were in the studio with them on 1098 well yeah it was pretty amazing and the, and the whole way that i met them was also one of these things that just happened by chance so in amongst doing all these i would call them uh dark wave records i suppose it was new you know punk had moved into new wave and i was then you know, working with like gang of four and killing joke and all these bands during this time and this is this is where the 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 whole story is kind of intertwined this very well known dj from melbourne a, a girl called nadia anderson she was one of the main dj's on triple r which is the melbourne local station and she was one of the first people to ever play midnight oil on radio and actually she not only played midnight oil she also played nick cave uh funnily enough who, who of course i've worked with a lot um so she she did an interview in melbourne with robin scott the singer from m the pop music guy yes. right he thought she was really talented and great and asked her to move to London to run his label because obviously he made a lot of money with that song so I was working with Robin this is this is two or three years later and so she walked into the studio and an incredible stunning looking woman and uh, so we we basically uh, became a couple and she played me Midnight Oil. She played me Models and In Excess and all these bands that I really that hadn't really made it to England. She played me Place Without a Postcard. Yes. And I thought it was great, but for my taste, it was a little bit safe. You know, it's it's pretty much straightforward rock and roll, very good rock and roll. But I was into much more left of center stuff, much more dangerous stuff. So. She played me their stuff and said, "Oh, they're going to be in town soon. They're moving here, and they they you know they want to do another record." Okay, so weeks later, I'm at a Talking Heads gig, uh, which was by by this time Talking Heads were a big band and they were playing at Wembley Stadium uh, with Tom Tom Club supporting them. It was a great gig. I'm, I'm at the gig with her. We're walking down one of the corridors in the intermission. And up walks, I believe it was Martin and Rob. I can't be sure, mm-hmm. but it was two of them. 
It definitely wasn't Peter because I would have <laughs> remembered <Yeah>. that. <laughs> and so it was this thing of like, we, and Nad, Nadia had, I think, already told them about meeting me and everything, but it was very much like a boyfriend thing. This is, you know, and um, she she was close friends with them. And so I met them, which went really, really, you know, it was just a meeting while buying hamburgers and whatever before Talking Heads came on. Went back to our respective seats. Um, about a month later, they came into the townhouse unknown. They didn't really realize that I was an engineer or producer, but they came in wanting to meet Hugh Padgham. Now, Hugh Padgham is this great recording engineer, record producer, who I learnt from. I learnt, in particular, the drum sound. So he he was an engineer that engineered for Steve Lillywhite. So, yes. so the team, so to speak, was Steve Lillywhite producing, Hugh Padgham engineering, and me assisting. And we did the XTC... Black Sea album, the tail end of Peter Gabriel's third album, mm -hmm. which has fantastic songs like Intruder and um, Games Without Frontiers. It, you know, one of the most, yeah. uh, to, yeah. for me, one of the most inspirational sounding records ever made. Um, so that's where I learned how to get that drum sound and, and all that. Um, so by the time I met Midnight Oil, I'd already produced quite a few of these sort of punk rock new wave records. Um, so so my my memory of, of, of how things went was quite funny because they came to meet Hugh Padgham. I believe they met him in another room. I was probably working on something. Got on well, but Hugh said, I, I, I can't do this record. I'm, I'm, I have to go off to do another police record. They, they wanted to work with him because of the police, <laughs> right? He said, I can't do it, but you should work with this kid. He's really young and his name's Nick Lornay because he's just done all these records that sound a bit like what you want to do and left it at that. And he did. They didn't know. They didn't realize I was the same person they'd met a few weeks before at the Talking Heads gig. So uh -huh. then the next thing happened that they met with someone else, and they too said, "Nick is someone you should meet." So eventually, somehow they got to, uh, you know, get in touch with me through the townhouse management. And I was like, yeah, I've, I've already met them. And it, it, it didn't click. And, and then I think Nadia reached out to them and said, yeah, you, it sounds like you're trying to get in touch with my boyfriend. You already met him, blah, blah, blah. And they go, what? That kid? He's like, you know, how old is he? Because um, bear in mind, Nadia is, uh, is older than me uh, by eight years. So, so okay. I really was like this geeky, you know, kid. Um, slightly punk rock looking, but not not dangerously punk rock. Like, you know, I look. I was just a <laughs> geeky person. And anyway, I, that ne I, next thing I remember was a, a meeting, which was at my house, which I was still living with my mum at the time. My room had a bright fluorescent green carpet, 
very punk rock and lots of punk rock posters and these massive tannoy speakers uh and that's it you know in a bed and so if you can imagine peter jim <laughs> rob i mean they, i think they all turned up i don't remember giffo being there i think the other four came and you know met my mum and oh yeah he's up in his bedroom <laughs> come up and of course Nadia was there so they come in and they're like they'd remembered meeting me and they were like slightly scratching their heads about like what the you know this is, is a kid um, yeah. they wanted a professional and um, so I then proceeded to play them the records I've been making and they knew one or two of them uh, Jim loved it all he was so excited mm -hmm. and was just like you know because Jim's kind of the most adventurous in the band yeah. you know always has been and he's into sounds and uh, he, he's very he, me and him are very similar in that way we both have that natural understanding of technology he was very excited Rob was a bit concerned about my age but anyway I played them these these Records. So I played them like the birthday party. Of course, they knew the birthday party, birthday party from Melbourne, and you know, and it was that song "Release the Bats," which is pretty scary. You know, it's it's a scary record. <laughs> then I got to play them the record that I'd just been working on, which was with Kate Bush, which was the Dreaming, which I engineered. Yes. Right? Mm. Uh, I engineered. I mean, that record. There were a lot of engineers involved, but I did all the backing tracks and the first three months of, of what I think was a whole year of them doing overdubs after that. I played them that and it's a much more sophisticated record. It's not so wild and, and, and punk rock, so to speak. And I think that was something that they were like, oh, wow, this guy, can he can do that. Because they wanted to sound more punk they wanted they what they were huge fans of the clash and that they also recognized that that their singer peter wasn't a a typical singer he was a character voice singer much like you know like the clash had yeah. so i think they left my house my mum's house slightly confused and scratching their head and not quite sure then the next thing I know was Hugh called me and said, oh, I've heard you've met up with Midnight Oil. How did it go? And I said, well, I think it went well, except I think they just think I'm too young, like I'm a bit of a risk. And then this, I think this agreement happened between Gary Morris, their their mm -hmm. manager, who's, as, as you I'm sure know, quite a character and very um, aggressive with his words um basically <laughs> we have the agreement was yes. <laughs> the agreement was that they would go into the studio with me with me producing and engineering with them producing as well like it would be me and them producing and see how it goes with a backup that Hugh Padgham would oversee it like he would mm. he's he said you know, I'm I'm a, I'm around. I'm just going to be busy doing the police album, but you can send me rough mixes and 
blah, blah, blah. And he was like a backup. He was almost like an insurance or a safety net. And that was, I yes. think, good enough for them to proceed. The next thing I know is we went into rehearsal and I, they played me some of their uh, songs that they'd done. They'd done, funnily enough, they'd done some recording with Bill Price. Uh, so some of the demos that I got were, were were incredibly well recorded by Bill Price, who, for for those of you who don't know who Bill Price is, he engineered a lot of records for the amazing record producer Chris Thomas. Chris and and they basically as a team they did um, Never Mind the Bollocks, the Sex Pistols record, oh, yeah, yeah. and uh, um, yeah. and the pretend most of the Pretenders records, and I mean incredible rock records so Bill Price uh, engineered these songs and I don't know whether they intended to perhaps work with him and these were proper recordings but they were really incredible demos I mean I got them and I was like wow however my in my mindset they were a little bit safe you know it what didn't have this kind of edge that I was used to and and I liked I'd been going to all these punk rock gigs and so I remember in rehearsal saying to to them after hearing one or two songs, I'm not sure. I think the songs are a bit slow. I think I think you sound a bit like mm -hmm. the Eagles. I remember saying that, and, <laughs> oh, and yeah. uh, they've. I know they've done interviews where they've explained meeting me and the whole thing, and they said, "Yeah, you, you know, came down to rehearsal and said we sounded like the Eagles," which I, <laughs> I, I'm sure I did. However, that didn't put them off. Um, Perhaps that, perhaps that made them go, oh, yeah, maybe we've got to be uh, a bit more edge is needed. Yeah. Um, I also went to see one of them play live. I, I think I was a little bit, you know, I wanted to do the album because my girlfriend was wanted me to do the album. She was obviously a friend and a fan. I was a little sceptical because I really did find them to be a little bit standard rock, you know, mm -hmm. and, and I was used to this much faster rawer stuff but then of course i saw them live you know i was basing all my thoughts on place without a postcard i saw them live and i was just like my god I, they they basically to me were a punk rock band it's just yes. that they they didn't look particularly punk and the lyrics weren't particularly punk but they had that energy that all those punk rock bands that i mentioned had so i was like yeah i, I want to do this and honestly, I think when we went into the studio and I got the sounds and they played, it just was magic. It just, it just worked. And uh, mm -hmm. they came in and heard the sound, that, that drum sound and the, you know, um, I mean, I don't think I've ever worked with a band that's that tight since, you know, they, they are one of the most they have that edge it's there live it's just that it hadn't been put on record up to that yeah. point so and i think that's maybe what many of the oils fans when they heard place without a postcard they were thinking well what happened to like head injuries and 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 the blue meanie that was happening before these guys were just so in your face with this pub rock kind of stuff and then it kind of mellowed down so you've kind of answered almost one of my next questions with which was you know were they looking to change the sound did you have to encourage them to change the sound it looks like it sounds like they were looking for a new sound to absolutely 
elevate them, but you also want to do that as well. Yeah, I mean, I was 20 years old, maybe 21. I might, may have just turned 21. Yeah, and I was a kid. I really, I mean, I literally was living at home with my mum still. I mean, my mum's yeah. and my brother. My, my mum, coolest mum on earth, you know, <laughs> very rock and roll mum. So it's not like uh, she was listening to... Uh, Engelbert Humperdinck or anything, but um, <laughs> sure. but uh, but I don't think I had formulated my brain to a point where I was like, they do this, they should do that. I'm gonna manipulate what they do to make it like this. I was just mm-hmm. into punk rock, and I'd done all these very very edgy records that had that done really well the year leading up to that so I had confidence uh I I was very very focused and I was really hyper as a person I mean I was just had a lot of energy running around I mean I was putting all my own mics up and trying this and trying that and running in I mean it's like so I think 1098 is 1098 because of my age and them being at a certain place and time in their career and their lives and me being at a certain place and time in my it was it was just this combination i mean they're they're older than me but but not by a lot maybe four or five years in age difference obviously when you're really young that's Mm -hmm. quite a lot but it's you know i I was definitely very young and i looked i looked more like a 17 year old i think you know I really think it was a case of the right time for us to be together in in a recording studio. You know, it's a lot of magic, a hell of a lot of magic. I would expect that some members of the band, and you already mentioned like Jim is very sonically um, adventurous, but I would imagine that some members of the band might be more invested in the sound that they already had, um, perhaps more like you're talking about like that, the high energy, the punk, the roadhouse um, kind of sound. When you guys were working on 1098, it seems like the sound of, of Midnight Oil changed so much. Like it became so 80s and so the things that you were doing were so new. Did all of the members, were they all on board with that? Or, or was, it, was it mostly you and Jim who were kind of pushing that kind of thing? Like how did that work with the band? How did the band's dynamic work as far as changing the sound to what some people think was so drastically into 1098? I think, yeah, you're, you're spot on in this question is very uh, on point to, you know, there was there, <laughs> there were, were different feelings in the band, for sure. Um, I, would, I would go through them and explain it this way. Jim, back then... We're talking 1981, was actually quite a quiet person and quite dark. If you met him now or any any time in the last, certainly the last 10, 15 years, he's a very up, happy person, full of joy and life and all that. And mm-hmm. I'd actually say he's been like that for more like 25 years. But when doing 1098, he was quite dark and and he wasn't moody as in difficult lovely guy but he had an intensity to him however mm-hmm. i bearing in mind who i'd worked with i was used to to working with really dark people people who had a real intensity and a and a sort of you know 
anxious vibe. And I didn't really find that uh, difficult or a problem. Mm-hmm. I, because to me, that was what made great music. Some of those people were doing all kinds of drugs that I was unaware of. I mean, with public image, you know, Keith Levine was doing heroin and I was completely oblivious to this. I was just too young, had no idea what these drugs were. So, I, you know, I was very, very used to intense uh, vibe. And and Jim had a, an intense vibe. and But somehow I clicked with him. And I, I do, and I do want to say, to be completely clear, Midnight Oil, never seen them do any drugs whatsoever, ever. <laughs> They're not that kind of a band. But, but nevertheless, there was an yeah, intensity yeah. there. And then added the technical things. And I think me and Jim just spiritually and technically, we just were on the same page from the moment I met mm-hmm. him. And, and to this day one of my best and closest friends that I click with. We're like yeah. soul brothers or whatever. <laughs> so the more I made the sounds bizarre and weird with delays and effects and gating and all this, the more he was into it, you know. Mm-hmm. Martin is, is a very quiet person and almost like the st- the stability of the band he's usually one step in the back being very quiet watching what's going on and is very often the voice of reason when there's ever any conflict Mm -hmm. then of course you've got rob and pete who are rob and jim write the majority of the music and and pete writes mm-hmm. the lyrics although rob and jim write lyrics too and then then usually what happens is pete changes them and adds his and and you know <laughs> obliterates theirs and puts his in it, you know it's an it's an odd dynamic but it works really well so rob was going through quite a hard time so he mm-hmm. wasn't he was probably the least sure about what I was doing, but he didn't say anything about it. I mean, I didn't feel, I, I just thought he was the loveliest or is the loveliest guy he could ever meet. And, but he has an, a different kind of intensity. And of course, very obviously to me, it was a massive who fan. And I loved the who, I mean, I grew up listening mostly to the stones and the who, uh, because of my mum, And so I was very familiar with all their records and they, in a way, are kind of a punk rock band, you know. So I related to Rob musically like The Who. It was all about that kind of crazy drum sound and and I was yeah. blown away by his drumming. I mean, like, I'd never seen or heard anything like it. I mean, it, he's got a unique way of playing. The other thing is they're Australians. Australians are cool and great people and generally they're they're happy and up yeah i only found out much much later that rob was having a pretty bad time during that whole album and i was quite surprised to hear that because i don't remember that at all probably because i was so focused in making the record and getting the sounds and you know there were probably discussions and arguments going on in the background between them 
about certain things. And I, to this day, don't know what they were. But my best guess is that Rob loved Place Without a Postcard and, and Glyn Johns because mm-hmm. he'd worked with, mm-hmm. obviously, The Who and The Stones and all that. Yep. And that album, when it came out, I think was an incredible disappointment in that it didn't do much. And they thought it was going to be the big record that would break them in England. And it yeah. didn't. It just didn't because the record company let them down badly. I don't think it was because it was a bad record. I think it was a record that sounded a bit, didn't fit in with the times in that, you know, had all those punk and new wave bands were going on and it, it did sound a little bit straight. So I think for Rob, it there was a little bit of push and pull. I, I think when he listened to what we were doing, he loved it but it wasn't quite what he was expecting. I think he was expecting mm-hmm. the record to sound perhaps like The Police or The Clash. Probably The Clash would have been as punk rock as he was going to go. And this was slightly... Not not, not that 1098 is, is particularly punk rock, but it's, it's pretty adventurous sonically. And bear yeah. in mind also, to get that drum sound that's on that record, I made him or convinced him, I would say, uh, record without cymbals and mostly without hi-hat, which is mm-hmm. is just horrible for a drummer. I mean, especially for a drummer like him, where it's all about playing that. But I was really sure. young. And did you have, like, carpet up over, like, yeah. for, the, for the cymbals for him to hit? Basically, the room that the drums were recorded in is stone. It's a not, not a huge room. It's a, probably the size of your average living room, maybe a little bit bigger than that. It's very tall, though. It's like twice the height of a normal room. And all the walls are rock. I mean, like literally <laughs> rock from a mountain. It's It was designed yeah. by a company called East, uh, East Lake or West Lake. They became West Lake. And uh, the story goes that they had extra boulders left over from doing the control room. <laughs> Like too many arrived. So they just built this stone room, not knowing what it would be. And a lot of people tried recording in there and couldn't because it was just too loud and abrasive. But that's where you get that drum sound from. And it's the same drum sound exactly as in the air tonight with, you know, for Phil Collins, which I assisted mm-hmm. on. That that was produced by Hugh Padgham. I, mm-hmm. I was the assistant on that album. And, you know, I pushed record and when that you know happened and of course that was very influential on me so that record had come out already and i knew how to get that drum sound so that's what i did but yeah that involves not playing any hi-hats or cymbals because if you play hi-hat cymbal it's so loud and they sound like massive dustbin lids so the only way to get that drum sound in that room with hi-hat and cymbals is to actually towels or cut carpet and put the carpet on top of the cymbals which is fine because you can overdub them they're just you know Mm. you can do that that wasn't the problem the problem was more the hi-hat because sometimes your groove involves the hi-hat so what we do with the hi-hat is we built a, a sort of tent around it using towels and bits of carpet and lots and lots of sticky tape so this was a big stretch for rob you know it was like it's a bit like asking a guitar player to play the guitar with all the strings reversed. But 
I don't remember any resistance from him. I think any resistance that he had in his mind, he kept to himself, maybe complained to the band about, or maybe was scratching his head about it. But of course, when he heard the drum sound, he was hooked. I mean, all mm -hmm. dr all drummers I've ever worked with, when they hear that sound, they go, "All right, <laughs> I'm down." So we have to <laughs> experiment have that, a bit. Please, some, yes, thank you very much. Yeah, some songs <laughs> we did record with hi hat, but all the cymbals were overdubbed later, and it wasn't that hard because what we did is I get the back, get the track, and then as soon as I'd edited together the track, he would then go out and overdub the cymbals, and it was second nature where they went, and and that mm -hmm. was very easy, and I think. As the album went on, we, we got into a groove about how we recorded the songs and the drums. And I, I remember him being super happy and blown away with the drum sounds and all that. But I do know, uh, learnt later on, that he was he was struggling on, on many levels. And I think it wasn't really totally to do with recording on music and the album. There was other things going on in his life. So Peter, obviously, Peter is is the um master of ceremonies he's the leader mm -hmm. his presence is huge in the room i mean he's yeah. such a character and you know all their accents their australian accents were you know a new thing to me but they are very australian with their accents but peter is on his next level you know it's like <laughs> i just found him fascinating i just thought this guy is a Johnny Rotten. He's a he's a Nick Cave. He's another. He's just this incredible character, amazingly charismatic, and on top of that, he's got this whole political agenda and his opinion on that. And he's very vocal and very polite. Uh, I mean, anybody who's met Pete and had a conversation with him, they're all very polite people, and they're all very educated very intelligent and I mean I believe that they all uh, a lot of them went to law school and there was talks yep. of them be being barristers and all kinds of things before they really decided okay this rock and roll thing is working let's do that so they're a very different band to any other band that I know of in that regard so so Peter there was definitely a lot of friction but I would call it healthy friction between Peter and Rob in particular. And I think that's always been the way on every record. And it certainly has been the way. And it's not an unfriendly thing. It's, it's just Rob tends to write fully formed songs with lyrics, with a concept and a plan. Yeah. And then what, then what happens at the last minute, at the last minute, when in the studio, when Pete is out there doing the vocal, suddenly Pete comes up with these completely different lyrics, different subject, totally ignoring what Rob's written and has probably been <laughs> obsessing on for months and does his own lyrics, which, of course, you know, this isn't, this has been normal for anybody, uh, but poor Rob is left with, what can you do? He's the singer. He wants to sing his lyrics. Yeah. And so definitely discussions would go on. And, and and I would apply this to all albums that I've made with them. And a very healthy discussion is, is made and a, and a compromise is, is reached. 
whereby very often the verses are Peter's lyrics and the chorus is Rob's lyrics. You know, the power and the passion <laughs> in particular. I, I, I mean, there's, there's probably a few lines here and there which would vary, but I would say all the verses are Pete's. The, the pre-choruses or, or bridges, you know, are, are Rob's and the chorus is Rob's. So it's this combination of the two great songwriters and lyric writers, both politically on the same page. This is this is where it all works. They're on the same page politically. Comes out. And the same applies to Jim, Jim's songs. So Jim will also have his songs with lyrics. Although I think Jim was less fussy about losing his lyrics. And I think at that time he was more of a musical person coming up with riffs and and song structure from that point of view not so much the lyrics uh, i mean th- I'm, I'm just giving a very a simplified version of of my take on their songwriting process mm-hmm. and martin of course comes up with his own riffs and let's now talk about giffo great right <laughs> because giffo or peter gifford who's obviously called giffo because he's peter and the can't be two Peters in the band. Yeah. Giffo mostly, like Martin, was more in the background watching what's happened. Martin was probably keeping the peace between Peter and Rob. Jim was just on his own cosmic, in his own cosmic (laughs) wonderland sort of musical fantasy world, which I was in there with him. So me and Jim were in this world just music let's get this down let's try recording the piano with drumsticks can hey rob can you play it yeah you know it's <laughs> so a lot of wacky ideas were going on because i'd just done this album with kate bush where she would come in in the morning and you know eat a, a whole bar of cadbury's dairy milk <laughs> chocolate and and go Nick, can we do this? Can we make the drums sound like cannons? We do this, and it would be like. So I was, you know, had had come from this, no budget, got all the time in the world, do anything you want. You can record the drums on the roof. So I was in that mode, which fit fitted in with Jim, Jim's sort of enthusiasm, and then this killer band. So talking about Giffo, I had not been to Australia at this point. I went to Australia after that album. So I, I my, my only experience of Australians was them at that time. And of course, Nadia, my, my girlfriend, who we, we got married a year. Oh, actually, we got, got married during that album. Oh, yeah. Actually, yeah, that's, that's, yeah. I think halfway through that album, we got secretly married because her visa ran out. And I didn't want her to go, so we got married. So, but actually, Midnight All didn't even know that it was at a time when <laughs> getting married wasn't cool. And of course, I was really young; I wasn't ready to get married. But that was the solution Nick, to her not going. You didn't make it to the session last night. What was going on? Yeah, <laughs> well, I just had to, I think you know, got married get, get on taken the way care to of. the studio <laughs> with my brother and my mum. Came, we just went into a registry office, got married, and I went to work. It's crazy. Crazy, and you know we have two kids, beautiful kids who are now older in their thirties now. Um, so, so yeah, um, Giffo. Let me stay on track. Giffo, mm-hmm. one of the most fascinating people on planet Earth. He is 
as Australian as it gets. I mean, the, the classic image of an Australian. So he was, when he wasn't playing bass, he was sitting on the couch, kind of slouched over, drinking beer all day long. I mean, it was just can of beer after can of beer. And occasionally he would make some remark and it was either about some heavy discussion, perhaps, that was going on about lyrics. And he would be like, oh, you know, get a fucking room. You know, <laughs> you know it would be, it'd be like the funniest things. And I, you know, I remember trying to work out what he was saying half the time because it was all those kind of Aussie, you know, taking the piss kind of thing. I mean, in England, obviously, we all take the piss and it's a part of English culture, but Australia's it's a next level and New Zealand's it's another next level, next level. It really is. So, so yeah, he was just funny. I just thought he was so funny. He was, he was just heckling everybody all the time. And for the most part, he just went out and played great bass. He never fucked up. He was, might've been buzzed, I mean, he had red face sometimes and slightly wobbly, but he'd go out there and play killer bass. And these things happened during the album whereby he came in. I mean, here's a good example. He'd come up to the desk really kind of drunk, put his arm around me and going, how you going, mate? Sounds fucking great, by the way. He says, you know, this song, um, I think, you know, we were working on short memory, right? And he goes, oh, you know, this needs a, a violin, a string part here. And I was like, what? You know, he just like yeah. being the bass player, never mentioned anything about anything else. Or he'd occasionally, you know, remark on someone else's playing or whatever. But suddenly he was going, yeah. And he's really drunk and he had his arm around me. And, you know, it's a big bloke. And he's like, going, yeah, it should go. He said, he says, I'll sort it out. Next thing I know is the violin player. Uh, I think her name's Giselle. Am I getting that right? Giselle Scales. There you go. Giselle Scales. You got it, Nick. Amazing, huh? I'm impressed. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So she arrived at the studio and basically Giffo told her what notes to play, where to play them, and it was the most bizarre part and if you listen to short memory it's at the end of the chorus there's this kind of weaving almost arabic part yeah Yeah. giffo wrote that (laughs) and he, he just and it was like amazing everybody was like wow and then other things happened. He kept coming up with parts that were really left of center and bizarre, but beautiful. He's just got that talent. And not to cut over to another record, but on Red Sails, he learned how to play the stick. Yeah, and that's a yeah. really difficult instrument to play. I mean, it was kind of this odd instrument that was cool at the time because Tony Levin had mastered it and played played mm-hmm. it so well and so interestingly on the Peter Gabriel record. But yeah, he got one and learned how to play it. And it's a weird thing, you know? Yeah. And he's playing really unusual notes. And the thing I love about Giffo is that a lot of rock bass players tend to, to play either 
just the low end of a guitar riff or they pump you know they just go which is yeah. great i'm not knocking that i'm not knocking that it works it's great it's rock and roll Giffo is doing some really weird stuff on 1098. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, somebody's out there, somebody's waiting. Listen to the... I mean, it, it, it's Entwistle. He is the perfect bass player to go with Rob. I would think, like, early on, there was more prog stuff. You, you could hear more prog stuff when Andrew Bear James was playing the bass. So it's neat to hear you tell these stories about... Peter Gifford and and how he's working in that kind of stuff and and him and Rob are, are are tracking together on that. Yeah, I mean, to me, he it was absolutely mind blowing. His ideas were just so odd, interesting, and cool. And that only happened when we were doing overdubs. You know, we'd already done all the backing tracks, so he'd all, already done what a bass player does. You know, all the the, the meat and potatoes stuff. And then yeah. suddenly, and 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 the funny thing about it is, most of these crazy ideas he had were when he was completely plastered. I mean, it like really <laughs> drunk, just beer, but yeah, it's yeah. just beer all day long, you know. Sure. And and it it was like one of those things where I think he had muttered some ideas and was ignored, not just by me but by the band because it was like it was like a drunk person waffling. And then yeah. that thing <laughs> happened with that string part. And it was suddenly like, Giffo, mate, you got, got any ideas for here? <laughs> and it was like, yep, it should go. Rah, 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 and we do it, you know? So right on. Since we're talking about Giffo, Screamin' Blue has this quiet part that sounds like uh, like a stand-up bass, like right. a, an acoustic. Is that what it is? And who do you remember who played that part? Yeah, that's Did it. Is Giff a stand-up bass, and I'd actually yeah. forgotten about. And and yeah, Giffo plays it. He yep. does right yep. on. Good wow. Fun. Yeah. So where did he even learn? Because that's a like I, I play electric bass, and I know that playing stand-up bass is is pretty different. Yes. And did he did he just pick it up or? Yep. I mean, I don't, I, wow. I, it's funny. I've never had that question, but I, now that you're asked, I remember this now that, that, that he was like, how, how the fuck do you play this thing? But he, he, he's just, <laughs> uh, he says like a big fucking violin, you know, he's a very funny guy. So he, he's, he's just a really talented guy. He has great dexterity. And he's very musical, although he might be within the band. He's, I would say they're all very left wing politically. He's slightly yeah. or, or very he's maybe a little <laughs> right wing. Yeah. But that was ne never came up, never came up. Mm -hmm. He is just a phenomenal musician with great fingers. That's great. And uh, I've got here the glitch, baby glitch. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Darren was remarking that it's almost like that remix it's it's a remix of power and the passion yeah it was almost like you were kind of pranking us or playing with our expectations there you, you'll have pete go uh-uh uh-uh and, right. and we'll expect the song to continue but then it goes in a different direction do, do you remember doing that I, remix? I, 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 yeah i very much remember it because well you've got to bear in mind that we're talking 1981, 12-inch singles and remixes were 
being done of all most singles that were released had a 12 inch remix so that happened it became a a, a fad a fashion and mm-hmm. I, I had done 12 inch remixes of many songs like the the gang of four to hell with poverty for instance there's a 12 inch remix of that and i did quite a few other ones um so because i was very into editing tape and uh, and and I and I'd done that pop music thing that was a huge yep. success. I loved experimenting with things. So the thing with Glitch Baby Glitch is, ten nine eight was done before digital technology really took off. So we were, it's all analog tape. There were no such things as digital tape recorders. That came about two years later. The only piece of digital equipment in the studio, and I I would say in any studio anywhere in the world at that time, was the AMS Delay, which is... AMS is an English company. And, you know, all the delays and echoes and things you'd you'd use on records were all analogue. And mostly yeah. with delays, you use tape machines. You had two tape machines running while you're mixing at two different speeds. And that's what gave you your slap echo. And then there was this incredible piece of equipment called the AMS. And you <laughs> could create, have quite a long delay and you could type in the number. And it was on a red digital display, which was like, wow. You know, you had yeah. digital watches that had tiny little red things. This, these numbers were big. I mean, I remember it was like, it was a, a piece of equipment that really stood out. And yeah. it had this interesting feature called lock-in. If you push this button after a sound had happened, it would capture it and yeah. basically sample it. But it wasn't called sampling. It was called lock-in. And you could modify these AMSs to trigger the sound that you had locked in there. Now, this sounds like, so what? Well, this was the first time it ever happened. And most yeah. pe- most AMSs back then did not have the triggerable input. Townhouse being a very new and advanced recording studio with great maintenance people, they modified the one in there. You could only put one sound in and it couldn't be very long. It wasn't even a second. It was like, (laughs) I think it was 600 milliseconds. I mean, it's really not long. So I did on that record trigger some snare sounds. It was very hard to get them in there and edit them, but I did it and I triggered them. And there's maybe one or two songs. I think Power and the Passion, for example, Mm -hmm. is basically Rob playing drums and the snare is triggered and there was a few other songs where i experimented that but when i did that remix it got called glitch baby glitch because of the ams it glitched basically when you put the sound in there and (laughs) let's say it was a snare and it went it very often went and the the glitch was really annoying so you had to gate it out and I was always saying, ah, oh, it's glitching again. And so I did this very unusual remix of the song. And I, I was constantly going on about glitches. And so I just <laughs> called it Glitch Baby Glitch. And it was a working title. 
And I think I did that. I must have done that. I did that mix after the album was finished. And it was just a, absolutely like you said. It was a bit of fun. It was me messing around with equipment. <laughs> and I was basically making a dance version of the song. Now, just to... You and your dance versions. Right. So <laughs> I was, you know, I was really into danceable music. I loved the Rolling Stones because they grooved and they had dance music. I loved The Clash because they made rock music that you could dance to. And I was really into that kind of music. And I, I think I pointed out to Midnight Oil, look, you know, you can have a rock song with guitars, but you can also make it groove and danceable and people will like it even more. And I remember saying, well, you know, ACDC, those songs are great dance records. The Rolling Stones are great dance records. So at the time, Midnight Oil, I think had done a gig, some a tour of Australia, maybe a year before called something like Death to Disco or Anti-Disco. Yes. They were, right? Yeah, that's right. They were really <laughs> anti-disco. So imagine they're now in the studio with this young kid who's telling them they sound like the Eagles and recording a song, which was one of the catchiest songs, Power and the Passion, with a drum machine. You know, I was very aware that this wasn't something we needed to do because Rob's such a great drummer. However, I thought, well, it is a danceable song. We had a Lindrum. And so there wasn't friction. I don't want to paint a picture of me going, we've got to use this drum machine. I was anti-drum machines. I wasn't, yeah. I was a, a punk rock kind of attitude person. I wasn't a disco attitude, you know, but I did love dance music. So I think the discussion went something along the line. Look, this song is... It's basically a dance song. The beat doesn't change. It should stay constant. It shouldn't speed up. Like all the other songs are rock and roll. They speed up on the chorus and they speed up as they go on. It's, you know, not done to a click. I was like, this song yeah. should be done to a click because then I can do a 12-inch remix. So you were planning this ahead of time. Yeah. And so after a bit of discussion about this, Midnight All were open to this idea. There wasn't any so i was like well why don't you play along to the lindrum and so then it became like hang on a minute let's do this song different and it's the only song on the whole record that's like this let's put the lindrum mm -hmm. let's use the lindrum as the drums and but have have rob play along and then it became really because he's such a good drummer and he's so tight it was like oh i'm gonna use the kick drum only from that and the hi-hat uh but the snare is Rob, because Rob has this way of playing the snare ahead of the beat, which makes it sound edgy. Mm -hmm. And and it's not, it's boom, ta, boom, ta, boom, ta. you know, it's, it gives it a slight swing yeah. and a human element. So that, I think that came together pretty quick. And it was like this compromise. I, I was just blown away by Rob's drumming and his drum fills and all this. So I really wanted a drum solo on the record. So that's why that drum solo happened and i think they already had planned to have something like that but it was it was you know we already had the track recorded and then rob's drums were still set up and he had these things called simmons drums yep 
which were yep. electronic sounds, which were very popular at the time, and they tend to go, doo, doo, you know, <laughs> they have this kind of <laughs> sound. So it was like, doo, 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 doo. and then the acoustic one where he's going, just like fireworks going on. So there was this section in the middle of the song which just had for whatever, 30 seconds. And we'd set up drum the drums, got the sound, push record, and that drum solo that you hear on that record was the first take and only take. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and it is a combination of Simmons and live drums, but they were all played at once. Yep. And, and that's it. Incredible. Yeah, it is incredible. It's <laughs> It's just the best. And then there was this, you know, obviously we all had a sense of humor about things as well. And it was like, it needs to end with some spectacular sound. So Townhouse Recording Studios, Studio 2, used to be a film studio of sorts. And there was this big bulb, you know, like electric light bulb, which mm -hmm. in Australia they call them globes. It was just sitting there. So this big, basically glass electric light bulb. And it was like, oh, and it didn't work. <laughs> it didn't work, right? My memory was Rob went into the live room with this light bulb. And I think he got up on a ladder and just dropped it right at that point. And I recorded it. And it just <laughs> nice. goes, you know, it goes. <laughs> So that's what that is. And I sampled that with my AMS lock-in sampler and put that on Read About It. So if you listen to Read About It, there is the same yeah, yeah. thing. It happens at, at this key point where the song stops and comes oh. back in. Yeah, so it's the same. It's yeah. exactly the same. same I just, sound. Yeah, I just took it off and put it there. Nothing ever happens. Nothing really matters. That's what happened. The other thing I could tell you about Power and the Passion that's very unusual, the way I mixed that record, there was no automation on the desk. Or there was, but it didn't work very well. So I used to mix the verses, get the sound, get the balance for the verses, and then rebalance for the chorus, mix them, and then I'd edit the song back together. And I made this mistake of an edit uh, on the middle section of Power and the Passion. If you listen to it, because there's a cowbell, donk, donk, Dot, mm -hmm. dot going through it and I just edited in one extra beat and people don't even notice it but if you listen to it and count one two three four one two three four it goes out of time it, it loses a beat or adds a beat and it I think it adds one so you have to go at one point you have to go one two three four five one two three four one two three four <laughs> so that's another weird thing about that that song and it was a mistake and we all listened to it and we're like yeah oh, that's actually really cool That's so, so awesome. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Nick, you have been so generous with your time today. We appreciate it so much. These stories are fantastic. Can we get together again in a couple weeks, maybe, and, and talk we can. some more? Maybe we'll talk about red sales. The sooner the Excellent. better, I say. 
Oh, right. <laughs> yeah. We will make arrangements to do that. Great. Yeah, it, it's great doing these things because it takes me right back there. And honestly, yeah. I mean, 1098 was I, I, the best way I could put that. The, the recording sessions for that album were magic. There was magic in the air. It, it, it was clearly meant to be that they came to London and, and met me. It was such a weird combination of uh, circumstances that brought us together. And obviously we've, we're best friends to this day and we did the other records as well. So it's, yeah, magic was in the air. <laughs> yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah, man. Thank you very much for your time. This has been fantastic. Yeah. Certainly look forward to to talking again. Yeah. 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 Thank you very much, Nick. Well, yeah. I'm more than happy to do it. It's, um, as I said, some of my favorite friends and favorite albums. So what a treat spending some time talking to Nick Lane about working with the oils. Robin and I didn't know exactly what to expect and were obviously beyond appreciative of Nick's time and willingness to meet up again to share more stories of working with Midnight Oil. But for now, it's time to hunker back down Remove the stylus from the record, slide 1098 back into its sleeve, and start spinning red sails as we look forward to the next episode of Comfortable Place on the Couch, a Midnight Oil podcast. Corrections? Comments? Hate mail? Questions for your favorite Midnight Oil producer? You can send us an email to our new podcast email address, oilscouch at gmail.com. Visit darrenfolds.com slash podcasts for any show notes we might have. Tweet us on the Twitter at Darren Folds or at whatever Robin's Twitter is. Did I mention send email to oilscouch at gmail.com? So for Robin Harbin and Nick Lane, I'm Darren Folds. Good night. Good night.